We'll be looking this morning at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Around the time that the United States was born, God was working into the, in the world uh, to begin what has been called the Modern Missions Movement. And that movement at the time centered on two people. The Lord was using two people. One man, William Carey, known as the father of modern missions. And he left on a ship from the United Kingdom over to India and spent his life there serving among Hindu peoples. Perhaps a slightly lesser known name, also very much at the center of the movement, is a man named Andrew Fuller. He's a man who stayed in England as a pastor, networking with other pastors and churches to keep William Carey on the field. Andrew Fuller looked back on the day that William Carey left and recorded for us uh, a phrase that has become a war cry, Uh, for churches as they seek to support their missionaries and remain behind. He says he looked into William Carey's eyes and it was as though William Carey were telling him, I will go down into that deep mine where there's no gospel light, where no one yet has explored. I'll go down into that deep mine as long as you hold the rope. I believe that this passage is an example of how Paul would teach local churches to hold the rope. How do we participate in the mission of Christ here in our home area? Devote yourselves to prayer, verse 2, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it as clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, verse 5. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are present with us through your Son and the person of your Spirit, that you are binding us together as one, as partners in the gospel. Uh, Though we come from different backgrounds, you are making us into one body to represent your Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, here on earth. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, work among us insight into the responsibilities that you have for us. Help us to see how we might participate in the mission that Christ has given us. I pray, Lord, that you would open eyes, and I pray also that you would grant us hearts that gladly submit to your will, that actively seek your purposes. Lord, we ask um, for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, so that your name 
would be hallowed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What does it mean to hold the rope? How do we participate in the mission of Christ? I would suggest from this passage that there are at least two responsibilities that as a local church we share. First, from verses 2 through 4, Paul wants us to pray. Holding the rope means praying globally. And second, verses 5 and 6, Holding the rope means relating locally. First, holding the rope means praying globally. Now, if you were listening as I read the passage, you might be thinking, like, why is he saying this, this adverb, globally? And is it just because he's the, you know, the missionary guest speaker? Uh, people expect him to talk about missions, so wherever he lands in the Bible, he's going to be talking about missions. It doesn't really matter what the passage says. I suggest that that's not the case. Even though in this passage there's nothing like all nations or the world or in all places, nothing like that shows up in the passage, but the historical context of this passage points us in a global direction, gives us a global scope for our prayers. That is to say that this letter was written in the middle of a story. All of the New Testament letters are written in the middle of the story. And it's up to us as readers to put together the pieces of the puzzle so that we see what the story was up to this point. Take a look with me at chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul is thanking the Colossian, thanking God for the faith of the Colossian church. And he talks about how the gospel message, the true message has come to them. Uh, verse 6, they, it says, just as it, has been, uh, just as it has been doing, the gospel has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace. Verse 7, you learned about God's grace. You learned this gospel message, this true message from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. Skip down, if you would, to chapter 2. I want you to know, chapter 2, verse 1, how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. So as we put the pieces of the puzzle together, what we begin to see is that this Colossian church did not hear the gospel initially from Paul. Colossae is actually a small town in an area of the world called the Lycus Valley. Uh, Laodicea and Hierapolis are also in this valley. It's not an area that Paul's strategy included. He wanted to go to big cities. The big city of this area was Ephesus, and he spent a significant amount of time in Ephesus proclaiming the gospel and teaching in a place called the School of Tyrannus. We conclude from the pieces of the puzzle that were given that Epaphras made his way down to Ephesus, perhaps seeking work, perhaps for a business opportunity. And while he was there, he heard the gospel from Paul. He didn't only hear the gospel, he followed Christ. And not only that, he grew in a burden to reach his home area 
with the gospel of Christ. And so he went back home and proclaimed the gospel where he grew up. Paul calls him a Colossian in in chapter 4. One of your own. Now, the, the point that I'm making from introducing this part of the story is that in verse 3 of chapter 4, Paul makes clear that he wants them to pray for him. Devote yourselves to prayer and pray for us too. This was before the days of Google Hangouts, Skype chats, photographs. These guys had never even seen Paul's face. But they're connected to Paul's mission through this man, Epaphras, who had brought the gospel to them. And now Epaphras is back with Paul reporting about the progress of the gospel in his home area. And, he, and Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church and exhorts them to pray for him. This is why I'm saying that we must devote ourselves to global prayers. Paul expected the Colossian church to pray not just for themselves, not just for their community, not just for Epaphras, whom they knew, but a missionary that they had never even met, that God would open a door for him to proclaim the message and grant clarity as he spoke. Paul intends for the Colossian church to pray for him. God intends us to pray globally. What do these global prayers look like? They're described for us in in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful. The first attribute of our prayers must be that they're watchful, that they're devoted. I'm fond of saying that the traffic in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, has improved my prayer life. Uh, The first Sunday that I was here, I was preparing uh, to get to our our first church to, to present uh, our report and our and our ministry update, and we are getting to church. I wasn't really behind. I wasn't I wasn't late. I wasn't in too much of a rush. But I get behind somebody at a stoplight, and it's kind of a rural area. There's nobody around, and I'm just about to honk the horn. And Jenny asked, "What are you doing?" I had totally converted, and and in my mind said, "There's nobody around. Who cares about the red light? Let's just go. Get moving." And in Kenya, if you don't act like that, you're acting contrary to expectations, which puts you in a position of danger, right? Uh, so I just, I'm just used to uh, that kind of pattern of traffic. Nobody's paying attention to any sort of written rules. The one unwritten rule is get out of my way. And everybody is following that rule. That's the one rule. So as you can imagine, life is chaotic when we get into the car. And there are multiple instances where I hit the brakes and immediately a prayer escapes from my mind sent up to the Lord in, in, in the half a second of time. And you can imagine that those aren't the kinds of prayers that are you know, really well thought through and structured. And they don't have an argument uh, casing things out for the glory of God. It's just like two words, even if it's a word, Lord help. And that's it. And I think, I think that this is part of what Paul means, pray without ceasing, that he teaches in other places. 
that we have an attitude of prayer. And the moment an emergency comes, our first instinct is to pray. But that's not what Paul is talking about in this passage. Clearly, in this passage, Paul wants us to be devoted. He wants us to be watchful. That means that there must be some point where we're planning to pray. Just like the the bumper sticker says, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. We must be devoted and watchful. Watch our own personal habits. Where are you in that? Consider where your lifestyle and your choices are putting you. Are you sliding toward prayerlessness? So Paul wants us to be deliberate, to be purposeful, intentional in our prayers. But he also wants us to be thankful. We must have deliberate prayers. We must have thankful prayers. Look how he models that back up in in chapter 1. As he's praying for the Colossian church in in, uh, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, he asks that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. He asks in verse 10 that they may live a life that's worthy of the Lord. And then he outlines kind of what that looks like, living a life that's worthy of the Lord. And in verse 12, he says that living a life that's worthy of the Lord ends with giving joyful thanks to the Father. And as he's outlining his prayer, as he's reporting how he prays for the Colossian church, by the way, I do make an effort to pray for my partner churches. So Highlands is coming up continually in my my own uh, prayer list as well. This is a a two-way street. But as Paul is praying and reporting his prayer to the Colossian church, he, he gets off track, maybe from our point of view. Because he, he departs from his prayer report into a thanksgiving report. And from there, he moves to an all-out hymn. And some of your translations actually have verses 15 through 20 outlined as a, as a poem. Because in the original, it's actually structured that way. Where Paul has launched from his prayer into a doctrinally laden song to his almighty God. Look at what he's singing about. In verse 12, he says, The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. You read through your Old Testament, you see that Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. God had an inheritance for His holy people, a delightful future. And He is the one who has qualified us to share in that inheritance. We have not qualified ourselves. We are not deserving ourselves. And that's why we erupt in joyful thanks that we have been qualified. How is it that we have been qualified? Through the Son, verse 13, the Son He loves has shed His blood for us and in redemption has forgiven our sins. Far from being deserving of the inheritance that he had promised to his holy people, we were unholy and sinful. 
And through the blood of his son, verse 20, he has reconciled us to himself, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The almighty second person of the Trinity, who is above all authorities, all kingdoms, all dominions, Nothing that was created was created except through Him. He shed His blood for us. How can we not erupt in thankfulness every time we enter the presence of this God? This is part, I believe, of what distinguishes our prayer requests from the grumbling of the children of Israel in Egypt. We don't have any water, we don't have any food. When we pray for our daily bread, we must remember this spirit of gratitude. It's the only way those who are poor in spirit can react to being admitted into the presence of the Almighty God. And you see how these two complement one another, being deliberate in prayer and being thankful in prayer. And if we were perhaps just led by our feelings of gratitude... Perhaps our prayers would only be in those instances where we're feeling the gratitude. But on the other side, if it were just checking something off the list, then we may be quite self-satisfied at the demonstration of our own discipline. But if you think of prayer as a demonstration of your discipline, you're missing what prayer really is. Prayer does often require discipline. Paul's well aware of that. But that's not what prayer is. Prayer is a declaration of our dependence on God and a celebration of His sufficiency. Being watchful in prayer and thankful. What specifically should we pray? What should we be praying? Well, Paul outlines two, two prayer requests for the Colossian people. And these could be multiplied if you study through the letters of Paul. Sometimes he prays for boldness. Sometimes he prays for safety. But here in this passage, we have two very crucial prayer requests. One, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. In Kenya, we experience this very directly. And you may be able to sympathize with us. For the first 15 months after we had moved away from language school, we lived about, our front door was about 10 feet from the next lady's front door. We're in an apartment complex. Our next door neighbor, over that 15 month period, we saw her twice. One time, the day that I moved in, and like maybe six months later, and then never again. It, that, that door of opportunity was closed. We, that's what we desperately needed, just an open door so that we could see face-to-face, so that we could maybe offer a, a Christmas cake or cookies. We, we just didn't have the opportunity. I saw her boyfriend one time. That was it. That was the entirety of our contact. Now, in Kenya, the, uh, one of the official languages is Swahili. You know, uh, Swahili is the language of Hakuna Matata. But Nairobi is not the capital of Hakuna Matata. 
If you have a salary-paying job in Nairobi, you're going to work your knuckles to the bone to keep it. And so often, just meeting, just seeing your neighbors is a challenge. So pray for us that we would have opportunities, that we would have time. Now, since then, we actually have new neighbors and we've, we have been able to get together with them and the Lord has been answering uh, that prayer in sometimes in very interesting ways in apartment complexes. You're living close together and uh, sometimes it's, it's interesting how, how the Lord brings those opportunities about, but we're ready to buy them up because we know how precious, uh, precious they are. Pray for us for opportunities. Pray also for clarity. As Paul says in verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly. Proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly as I should. Now we have the the challenge of of cultural boundaries. Uh, One of the official languages is English and we're actually able to teach in English. And there's hardly ever a situation where I need Swahili and the limited Swahili that I have is, is sufficient even in those times when I, do, when I do need it. But even if there's not a language barrier, like we're speaking different languages, there's, there are many cultural barriers. And sometimes the desperate need is just for clarity to be able to get the point across. You consider the theology that's behind these two requests. The deep conviction that Paul has that drives him for these two requests. Notice that he hasn't said that I may win the argument or that I may remember all of those answers to all of those objections. Paul is convinced that the power is in the gospel, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God into salvation. And if the power is in the message, if the Spirit uses the Word, then what do we need? We need an opportunity to speak up and clarity when we do. We have a powerful God who backs a powerful message. And the desperate need that we have is not cleverness or flashy shows to attract people according to their own desires. But clarity, an opportunity to speak the word clearly. Pray for us. But holding the rope isn't just about prayer. If we were to look at the book of Philippians, you would see a beautiful picture of the financial aspects of holding the rope, of gospel partnership and participation in the, participation in the mission of Christ. But these, these verses outline for us another responsibility, which is just as crucial. As I return home from the States, sometimes it's discouraging to see churches growing older and smaller. Uh, churches who are not taking this responsibility seriously. That is the responsibility to relate locally. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. The, the responsibility to pray globally comes along with a local 
responsibility. A walk toward outsiders. Now, this walk must be characterized by biblical wisdom. Another facet of the story that resulted in the letter to the Colossian church was that there was a group of Jews who were trying to distract the Colossian believers by using Greek philosophy as a means of deceit and ascetic practices. And Paul is confronting them at times saying, why are you submitting to these rules that these outsiders are bringing? It's not philosophy that Paul is recommending here when he says that our walk should be characterized by wisdom. This is the kind of wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord. And I know many of you parents and grandparents are doing everything you can to teach your children this lifestyle of wisdom. It is this kind of wisdom and insight that are treasures hidden in Christ, according to Colossians chapter 2. So that faithfulness to Christ results in this kind of lifestyle. And this kind of lifestyle is how we silence the objections of outsiders. It's not by, not by speaking up, not by yelling other people down. We silence the objections of outsiders, according to Titus chapter 2, by living this life of biblical wisdom. By understanding, for instance, the book of Proverbs and what it says about work ethic, what it says about seeking advice and receiving instruction, what it says about receiving revelation and the authority that comes in God's Word. This is a walk of wisdom. Our lives should be characterized by biblical wisdom. Now notice that this life of biblical wisdom does not result in isolation. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. In fact, there there is uh, something that might make us a little bit uncomfortable in this text, and this is the word outsiders, to them that are without. And if you are a, a guest here, Uh, This morning, what I want you to see is that it's actually loving for us to recognize you as a guest rather than as a member, as one of us. And the reason that that is loving is that you're not part of the family yet. But we have a great message to share with you that not because of your own qualifications, but because of Christ's redemption you can be brought from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light because Christ, through his death and resurrection, has gained victory over sin, the penalty that we deserved, death. You can be welcomed in. And our walk, as characterized as it is by biblical wisdom, cannot result in an isolation from Outsiders. We must be walking toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Uh, in the older translations translated, redeeming the time. And in Paul's, uh, in Paul's letter, there's actually a connection between the word that he uses here, making the best use of the time, and that he used in chapter 1 when he talked about redemption in Christ Jesus. And I think that connection is deliberate. It's not about 
you know, multitasking or listening to audiobooks while you drive or, or doing that kind of work to make the best use of your time. What he's talking about is saying, when you have opportunities and relationships, are you using the time redemptively? Or is it just picking up your coffee at Starbucks? Is it just getting your hair cut or your nails done? Or is there an opportunity that you have to spin the conversation toward redemption? Our talk, our walk needs to be accompanied by a talk. The one goes with the other. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Now, I think you could take this just as being polite, being gracious. Let your conversation be full of grace. Don't, uh, you know, be kind in the way that you talk toward outsiders. But I think Paul uses grace again in its redemptive sense. He's pushing us beyond just politeness and saying that the meat of your conversation should be seasoned with the salt of the gospel of grace, the message of grace. Unbelievers so often think of Christianity as a judgmental religion. And the judgment of God against sin is clearly revealed in the Scripture and is, and is just and righteous and holy. We want a good God to judge sin, except when it comes to us. And so we need to be clear when we speak to others that there is a message of grace. You remember Acts chapter 2? That there was forgiveness promised even in the very generation. That very group of people who said crucify him to the Lord Jesus was promised forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Let our speech be salted with that message of grace and forgiveness. And don't, don't let it be a cookie cutter kind of presentation a memorized presentation that you give to every single person. We're not like those Jewish uh, cultists who were trying to distract the Colossian believers and wanted to brag about how many Gentiles they could bring in. Prize the individual. You notice that it says, so that you may know how to answer every one. Our presentation of the gospel needs to be tailored to the individual. Not that the message changes. But people's questions change. People's idols differ from person to person. It's going to look different when that person turns away from alcohol, from a person who turns away from a life of theft, from a person who turns away from a life of self-righteousness and Pharisaism. Repentance is going to look different. All of them are going to be required to repent, but our call should be tailored to the individual. What questions do they have? Do you even know what questions your neighbors have? Do I even know what questions my neighbor have about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? This is a tall order. It's not an easy business, holding the rope, participating in the mission of Christ. But there is a note of hope here. Paul says in verse 3 that the message that we proclaim is the mystery of Christ. And as we piece together pieces of the puzzle from Ephesians and Colossians, this phrase, mystery of Christ, as it turns out, is the astounding surprise 
that God would include sinners like us, Gentiles like us, in His great rescue plan for the world. Think of how shocking it would be. Just remember Acts chapter 10, that God would include people like us, the Corneliuses of the world, the weirdos, the outsiders from the Jewish perspective. And if God can include us in his great rescue plan, then he can use us to include others.